does meditation actually help you anti-age? On today's episode, we bring on meditation expert, author, speaker, incredible human being, Amanda Gilbert. Mindfulness, though, it's more of a mobile mechanism, meaning that we can be mindful outside of meditation. We could be mindful at any point in our lives. And mindfulness, the way I like to define it, is having our attention in the present moment, moment to moment, in a non-judgmental and kind-hearted way. So mindfulness is something that we can always be practicing out in the midst of our daily lives. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. I am very grateful you chose us today. Today's topic is a very important topic. We don't really cover a lot about mindfulness and meditation. It might be sprinkled in different episodes here and there, but today we take a deep dive. And I found this so fascinating that there's actually research that you could increase telomere length or prevent the telomeres from shortening rapidly and protect your DNA, essentially anti-age with meditation. Amanda is going to share some research on that which I found so fascinating. You're going to hear about Amanda's backstory, how she was introduced to meditation in high school. She was dealing with a lot, and it made a big difference in her life. And now she is an expert in this field. She's written a book, which we'll talk about. And she does workshops, and she's local to Miami now. We talk about that. I was introduced to Amanda through a mutual friend, Danielle Slosby. Danielle, if you're listening, thank you. I appreciate you. You're wonderful uh, Danielle connected us via email and it happened to turn out uh, that Amanda was moving to Miami. So we had dinner and then we recorded a podcast and today is a result of that awesome podcast. So here's what we covered today. We're going to discuss the distinction and let's say strong distinction between defining meditation and mindfulness. What's the difference there? We'll get into the classical teachings of Brahma Vihara and that is loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. We're going to unpack all of those. How can you show up with more love and compassion, first and foremost, for yourself, and then for the people in your life, for the world, etc.? We will talk about something that I have struggled with in the past, and I share something really raw uh, on the episode today. Imposter syndrome, and I and I share a specific scenario last year where I was speaking at Keto Salt Lake, where I felt the imposter syndrome, and it still comes back from here 
there from time to time. And uh, Amanda's going to give her thoughts on that and why she believes compassion is a direct antidote to the imposter syndrome. And then we finish with my favorite part, vitamin G. The quickest way to bring you back to happiness and joy is to take a handful of vitamin G. You're going to want to hear all about that and so much more. Her book is called Kindness Now. You can get it at bookstores, online. We'll drop a link for it in the podcast notes. We're going to dive deep into that book as well. It's a 28-day guide to living with authenticity, intention, and compassion. Her Instagram and socials and everything can be found down below in the podcast notes. Before I bring on Amanda, I want to take a minute to get to the Apple podcast rating and review of the day. I want to give you a nice little shout out here. This podcast or this review is a five-star review from Anka0624 titled, Very Helpful and Educational. I find Keto Camp to be very motivational and inspiring. I learn a lot from Ben and follow many of his suggestions. Health and wellness are my priorities. Happy to see so many resources here to support my goals. I am a devoted, intermittent faster, constantly looking to improve. Thank you. Anka, thank you. Good job being a devoted intermittent faster. And I love that you are prioritizing health and wellness. That is the way to live your life. So I acknowledge you for that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the time to leave that rating and review. It really means a lot to us. If you have not left the show a rating and a review on whatever platform you're listening from, please do so right now. It really, really helps. If you heard the previous episode, I had a huge announcement that our next seven-day Keto Challenge. Our next free seven-day Keto Challenge is starting April 10th. And it's going to be seven days, two-hour live streams every day. And the confirmed speakers are Dr. Jason Fung, the legend, author of the Obesity Code, the Diabetes Code, the Cancer Code, PCOS Plan. He's the father of fasting. Dr. Jason Fung is a confirmed speaker. We also have the amazing, beautiful Dr. Boz talk all about glucose, advanced glycation end products. And then we have Dr. Ken Berry, Mr. Proper Human Diet himself, joining other special guests, over $10,000 in free prizes. You are not going to want to miss this. This is going to be our best one yet. So head over to ketocampchallenge.com, camp with a K, or click the link in the podcast notes below. Lock this in your calendar, secure your spot. And I can't wait to do this one. This is going to be phenomenal. KetoCampChallenge.com. Okay, let's talk about meditation, mindfulness, vitamin G, and doing the inner work, the most important work, with Amanda Gilbert. Amanda Gilbert is a modern-day meditation teacher. She's also a writer, a speaker. She has been a meditator for over 15 years and teaches from coast to coast in the United States, including LA, New York, San Diego, Miami, baby, San Francisco, as well as online. She is a professor. She was a professor of mindfulness at the University of Southern California and the author of Kindness Now. Go get it. Uh, we'll talk about that shortly. You're going to hear her backstory and you're going to be so inspired to get on this path of doing the inner work. So without further ado, here is Amanda Gilbert. Amanda Gilbert, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast. Hi, Ben. It is so great to be here. Thank you for having me on today. You are now a fellow Miamian who have you've moved to Miami from California recently. Uh, so welcome to Florida. 
Thank you. That means so much. And Miami has been nothing but a warm welcome, including such a warm welcome from yourself and fellow wellness leaders here in the local space in Miami. So it's been it's been a wonderful move and a brand new beginning here in Miami. That's awesome. Yeah, we had we had dinner. Like you were just here. I think you had just moved here for like a couple of weeks. So we had dinner right in the beginning. Courtesy, by the way, credit to Danielle who connected us together. Danielle's working with you and we set up a dinner and we had a great time. We had a big group there. We had some good foods, great conversation. And now we're going to have an amazing conversation all about the amazing work you're doing. So thank you for being here, first and foremost. I want to get into your backstory. I've written a recent book and we'll talk about your book. You're a meditation expert, meditation teacher. You talk a lot about mindfulness and being present, which is so very important for any dietary philosophy people are following, whether it's keto or vegetarianism, whatever it is. But how did you get started with this? Like, what were some of the the pain points that you might have faced that led you down this path of teaching what you teach today? Yes, it's a good starting point for a conversation on meditation because each of us, when we really embark on welcoming meditation more into our lives, we all start the journey of our own origin story. And my origin story with meditation is really two parts then, which is the first part of my origin story began in my senior year of high school where I first meditated ever. And I remember being guided in meditation by one of my high school teachers, this really unique setting. Um, I was at a homeschool in the middle of West Virginia that was focused on search and rescue, outdoor living skills, but also a unique high school that incorporated South American wisdom and philosophy because the founder of this school went and studied with indigenous cultures in South America and brought the wisdom of um, the four winds to the high school curriculum that he developed and then taught at this high school. So I began most of the mornings at this high school with um, a teacher that guided me to bring my attention into the present moment. And as a angsty teenager at the time, I had this profound experience, which I never forgot, which was I felt deeply at peace and at ease in my own skin as a young person for the first time in like that chapter of my life. And that moment of ease and peace and feeling like I belonged in like that body, my body at the time, it really stuck with me through the years. And then part two of my origin story happened a few years later. I was in my early 20s and in a sense, I was also lucky between high school and this point uh, in my undergraduate studies where meditation kept knocking on my doorstep. I had it a part of my undergraduate curriculum in college. People were always giving me books on meditation. It was still very much a part of my life. But uh, before this part two of the origin story happened, I was more of a crisis meditator. Like I would only meditate when I knew that I was like having a really hard time where I like needed the extra support in my life. But what really made me become a consistent meditator and a serious meditator was on the heels of a really difficult early adulthood life moment where everything I knew it as before changed. I had a deeper wisdom and awareness arise within me that said, Amanda, if you are going to get through this in any sort of holistic way, 
if you're going to move through the broken pieces of how you are experiencing yourself to be, then you need to get serious about meditation. I knew that meditation was the key to any healing journey for me. So I went and found my first teachers in meditation. I became a super serious meditator, meditating for a couple hours a day, and then began to conduct clinical research on meditation and mindfulness at the University of California, San Francisco, where I was center director at the Aging Metabolism and Emotions Laboratory with Dr. Alyssa Eppel, an amazing health psychology researcher with whose uh, work focuses on telomerase and telomeres. And then after that, I became a meditation teacher, most recently um, a professor of mindfulness at USC. So my journey really, really began from early days as a young as a young person in high school. But then what got me to be a really serious meditator was on the heels of a very difficult life moment. And I literally to this day recognize that meditation is the modality and the practice that really allowed me to be who I am today. Wow. Okay. So I want to I want to ask a question on the, the first part of your journey there. When you said in high school, uh, you were actually practicing meditation, which is very unique. And I love that you did that back then. You mentioned that it was like the first time you felt authentic or comfortable like in your body. Could you explain what you mean by that and how you felt prior to that? Oh, so much. Yes. I realized that as a teenager who was just going through maybe a lot of quote unquote normal teenage angst and, you know, acting out in a, in a variety of unskillful behavioral ways, I had been looking for a feeling of peace or a feeling of ease through all of these unskillful means as a, you know, as a young person. And then when I was first guided in meditation, that feeling of deep ease, that feeling of peace, that feeling of like belonging to myself was the first moment since, you know, really since like being a very, very young child, like a little girl. So even take a moment and for yourself, Ben, and for all of our listeners right now, think back to your very early childhood and remember how uninhibited you felt and how free and like happy and like contented you felt like most of the time, of course, as kids, we're not always happy, but we felt free. We felt uninhibited. We didn't second guess ourselves, et cetera. And so that first time in meditation, that was the first time in like my, you know, conscious young adult life where I felt that since being a young child and it was a feeling of just really being very, at ease, confident, centered, and not feeling like all over the place or just riddled with like restlessness and, and self-doubt. Yeah. So that's so when you said that, it brought me back to my childhood when I used to play um, football in the streets here in Miami Beach with my friends without like any worries, just think, being there present, just with my friends, throwing the football around, not worried about politics, not worried about how many views my video got, how many social media likes I got, or whatever other problems we kind of deal with as an adult. So you're you're kind of explaining that, like kind of a worry-free, in-the-moment presence where you're just enjoying yourself where you are at that time. Exactly. And also, yeah, not being pulled by maybe external distractions as much, but also just really resting in the truth and the authenticity 
of who you are. I just remember feeling not like I wanted to like crawl out of my skin for the first time as like a teenager and just feeling totally at peace and okay with sitting still in who I was for those few minutes being guided in meditation. Very cool. So then as you transition and you were working in uh, San Francisco at that clinic, you mentioned telomeres and that's a, a very popular topic when it comes to like anti-aging and protecting your DNA. The shorter the telomeres get, the more susceptible your DNA is to damage, which could trigger a gene in a bad way. So what did you see there? Uh, what sort of research were you looking at with meditation as it relates to preventing this, this DNA damage and increasing telomere length, if you saw that at all? Yes, I was so honored to be working with Dr. Alyssa Eppel and her main collaborator, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn. And their research focuses largely on telomeres and telomerase. And then Dr. Alyssa Eppel, her research really focuses on stress reduction, stress management, including mindfulness and meditation and how these affect our cellular uh, aging biomarkers like telomeres and telomerase. So what we found in the research that I helped her conduct and was a part of during my time there was that meditation and mindfulness actually help produce more telomerase at times in the body, which help build back the length of our telomeres. So more telomerase, this enzyme that naturally occurs in the body increases after a period of meditation, it really depended on the study, the length of time. Sometimes it would be over the span of a week that we would look at. Other longer studies were over the span of 12 weeks, like three months or longer, even six months or nine months or a year out if we tracked um, study participants for that length of time. But overall, the takeaways uh, I, I remember were that telomerase were increased and they would help build back our telomeres or the amount of telomere deterioration would decrease the more a person was engaged with mindfulness and meditation. So we really found that overall, our cell health and our cell aging is largely uh, helped by spending time in meditation. That is fascinating. And you saw that, you said sometimes within just a week, you saw that those benefits? Yes, yes. We did one study in particular, which was a fantastic study, and it tracked a group of participants over seven days at a meditation retreat. And then we had a control group at the same exact resort that the meditation retreat was being conducted at, and we tracked them literally just being on vacation. So not receiving any meditation instructions, not receiving any self-growth guidance or inspiration, just purely relaxing, having R&R by the pool in like a beautiful resort in San Diego, California. So we did find, well, at the end of the week, there wasn't significant differences uh, between the groups, but what we found later in our follow-up measures, I believe it was at maybe three months and six months and nine months with this group, we found that the 
participants who went on the meditation retreat, they um, actually felt an overall sense of greater well-being and ease in their life. So there's a psychological difference, a change in difference that we were able to find. And then also the telomerase findings too, I believe there was a difference between the groups at the one week mark. So we were tracking not only the cell health and cell aging markers, but also a gamut of measures around psychological health and well-being. So yeah, there were differences between the group that was just purely on vacation and the group that spent their time on a meditation retreat. So usually there's this question, should I go spend a week of my time off on self-development or going on a meditation-like retreat or experience, or should I just go vacation for a week? And which is better in the long run for my health and well-being? We were able to confidently discern and say, yeah, and especially in the long run, the, the meditation retreat is well worth your time for your mental health and emotional health and overall psychological well-being. Very, very cool. Very interesting. So for those who are interested in anti-aging, which I think every single person watching and listening, uh, you can't neglect this part of it, the meditation, the mindfulness practice. So what would be your definition of meditation? There's a lot of people who teach it different ways and people have different understandings of it. Most people might think, or some people might think that meditation is like a Buddhist monk out there in the wilderness, you know, practicing mindfulness. But what would be your definition and explanation of uh, meditation? It's a very important and essential question, Ben, because there are so many different definitions that we hear out there, especially in today's modern world and across all the media channels and news headlines. And meditation, I like to actually draw a strong distinction between defining meditation and even defining mindfulness, because out in the media, the two words are actually used pretty interchangeably, and there is a difference between the two. So how I like to think about or define meditation is that it is the active practice and training that we engage with in a consistent way where we are working with our muscle of mindfulness in the mind. So it is a training for our brain's attention that helps us grow our ability to hold our brain's attention in the present moment. So through the training or act or practice of meditation, which is the intentional practice, it's sitting down for one minute, for five minutes, for 20 minutes or more in a consistent way, that training helps actually grow our capacity for mindfulness, having our attention and living our lives in the present moment. Mindfulness though, it's more of a mobile mechanism, meaning that we can be mindful outside of meditation. We could be mindful at any point in our lives. And mindfulness, the way I like to define it, is having our attention in the present moment, moment to moment, in a non-judgmental and kind-hearted way. So you're, you probably are realizing or thinking, well, yeah, I can have my attention in the present moment in a hopefully in a non-judgmental and kind-hearted way during anything that I'm doing, during a sports activity, during a walk, while eating, in a conversation. So mindfulness is something that we can always be practicing out in the midst of our daily lives. Yeah, I love those two distinctions and definitions. It makes so much uh, sense to me. And think about the world that we live in, this like 
taking us away from both of those practices, meditation and mindfulness with social media. I once read an article that showed the average person scrolls on their phone enough times with their finger to climb the Empire State Building in a day. (laughs) And that's a lot of distraction, dopamine hits. So if somebody is in that habit right now of on their phone all the time consuming social media, what are the first steps they can take to kind of break away from that and be more mindfulness and protect the dopamine hits they've been getting so hitting so often? Oh, yes, yes. It's such an important and good question because I always like to say the first the first step to any change that we want in our lives always begins with awareness. And meditation and mindfulness, we are naturally working with this quality of awareness. So the moment we become aware, whether we're at the beginning of a scroll, mid-scroll, or 25 minutes into a scrolling session, doesn't matter when that happens. The moment we become aware, up. Oh, I've been scrolling, I'm down the rabbit hole of social media right now. That's this very same moment where we can then choose to implement a change. And the change, one of the practices I love to offer to my students, especially students who are maybe younger millennials or or any millennial or or Gen Z age students um, in university is to practice pausing. So actually disengaging from the device for a moment pause, inviting in a moment of mindfulness after that that initial moment of awareness. And then sometimes it's even just giving yourself the space and the opportunity to choose something different, maybe putting down the device or placing a hand on your heart and just saying, it's okay, I don't have to feel bad about this. I don't have to judge myself about what I, you know, that social media scrolling session I was just consumed with. So also inviting in kindness and compassion into our experience but also realizing that we do have a mindful choice after we become aware, and then we can choose something different, which is to disengage from the devices if we want, or keep scrolling, but with consciousness and awareness, we made the decision, we're aware <laughs> that we're still scrolling. So it's a big difference. Big difference. I love that. It's a, it's a, awareness is the key. You mentioned it. It reminds me of a quote from uh, Neville Goddard. Did you ever study Neville Goddard at all? No, not so much. So he's like from the 1950s. He has a great book uh, called Feeling is the Secret. But there's a quote that resonated with me. And I, what you shared reson- it made me think of the quote. He said, we are only limited by weakness of attention and poverty of imagination. Oh, perfection. It's <laughs> <laughs> exactly what you just said. Right. So I, I love that. Awareness is number one. Uh, that's the first step in understanding, you know, what are you doing? I remember I, I read a book a few years ago called uh, Turning Pro by Stephen Pressfield. And I ended up reading it again just a few weeks ago. And he talks about this resistance and he explains it like, and such a brilliant, he's such a brilliant writer. He explains it as like this, something that is occurring that you can't see, but it's taking you away from your authentic self. It's taking you away from the goals you want to achieve. He calls it resistance. So I like, I love the way he explains it. So when I find myself on TikTok sometimes consuming versus producing, I become aware, like you said, and I'm consciously aware. And I think, oh, the resistance is actually winning right now. I don't want the resistance to win. So I make a conscious decision to turn it off and do the thing that I need to do in order to get the work done. But it started with the awareness. And I love that you explained it that way. 
Yes, yes. And thank you so much for actually pointing us towards the opportunity to work with resistance in a really skillful way too. just to name it, whatever it is we're resisting by letting ourselves be carried away with mind wandering or being consumed by a distraction. And what is that resistance perhaps to doing what it is we actually truly want to be doing in a meaningful and purposeful way. So I love that. Absolutely. Hey, when was the last time you bit into a juicy burger or a perfectly cooked steak and thought to yourself, this is the best thing I've ever tasted? If it's been a while, it's probably because most meat products are conventionally raised, which not only affects the flavor profile, but significantly diminishes the beneficial nutrients and minerals. And believe it or not, even products that are labeled as grass-fed or ethically raised to make you think they're high quality, are often finished on grain or in factory farms, which is why I am so excited to share something with you today that will not only help you avoid the hormones, antibiotics, and pesticide residues that diminish the taste of conventionally raised meat, but could also save you nearly $1,000 over the next year on your grocery bill. And the best part? This may be the best tasting thing you've had in a long time. So what the heck am I talking about? I'm talking about Wild Pastures Meat Delivery. They provide the highest quality meats from small, regenerative, family-run farms here in the United States that prioritize sustainability and animal welfare. Their beef is 100% grass-fed. Their pork and poultry are pasture-raised, something you won't find anywhere in the grocery store, resulting in meats that are not only healthier for you, but also better for the environment. One of the reasons why me and my fiance Natasha loves wild pastures is that we can opt out out of supporting harmful conventional farming practices and instead support small family-run farms without spending a fortune. And the convenience doesn't stop there. They offer delivery straight to your door so you can enjoy delicious, high-quality meats without even leaving your house. No matter where you are in the lower 48 states, Wild Pastures has got you covered. Not only is this the most convenient way to get your meat products, but wild pasture meats are better for you nutritionally and they're higher in the total nutrients, phytonutrients, antioxidants, key fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, proteins, and amino acids. And today, for keto campers, for a limited time, you can get 20% off every box plus free shipping for life and... $15 off your first box. This is a crazy deal, and I hope you take advantage of it. So make the switch to Wild Pastures today and save nearly $1,000 on your grocery bill while feeling healthier and enjoying the best tasting meats of your life. All you need to do is go to the link in the podcast notes down below. Everything is already applied. All you got to do is click that link, customize your order, and you'll have some delicious, healthy tasting meats very soon. Head to the podcast notes down below, click the link, enjoy your wild pastures. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. And you wrote a recent book. Congratulations, by the way. Um, it's called Kindness Now, a 28-day guide to living with authenticity, intention, and compassion. So what inspired you to write the book and what is the book all about? The main reason why I wrote Kindness Now is because as a meditation teacher, I was starting to notice a consistent question from a lot of my students and the people who would come meditate with me in person or 
online at the time. And it did, didn't really matter, you know, where the meditation was being held. So it wasn't dependent on settings. It wasn't dependent on age of the meditator or demographic of the meditator. But what I started to notice was the same question over and over again, which is, Amanda, you know, I've learned about meditation. I've gotten my bearings on the basics of meditation and mindfulness practice. I know that when my attention wanders away from the breath or from the body, whatever it is I'm focusing my attention on in the present moment, I know that I'm supposed to bring it back to the breath and start my meditation practice again. Got it, like noted, check. But then the question would would be, and now what? <laughs> and now what comes next, you know, after really getting grounded in the basics and fundamentals of meditation and training our attention to be in the present moment? And what often comes next is the experience of actually having more awareness of all of the different thoughts that are always happening in the mind. So we actually often grow our inner or self-awareness of our mental landscape. And we also grow more awareness of the sorts of emotions or feelings or habits of reaction that we may be carrying within us in the emotional body. We also grow more awareness of even our physical body, sensations in the body, maybe pain points in the body, where the body feels well and healthy, where the body doesn't have a full expression of health or well-being. So really what we're we're asked to do is start to notice, well, how do I meet all of these self-data points of awareness in a skillful way? And this is where kindness now came in because wonderfully what we know from the mindfulness tradition, also coming from uh, the Buddhist tradition of, of meditation, is that when we start to be able to notice these different aspects of ourselves, bringing mindfulness to our mind, bringing mindfulness to our emotions, being able to stay with our experience in the present moment, what is helpful is also incorporating the heart and the heart practices. So this is why I really knew there was a call, like a greater call to actually highlight the essential and pivotal practices of the heart practices of mindfulness meditation. So loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity, also known as the classical teachings of the Brahma Viharas in Buddhist uh, meditation. So these four classical teachings of the heart help us in navigating the inevitable stickiness, the inevitable experience of wanting to judge our minds, judge our emotions, um, etc. When we add in kindness and compassion as a modern day meditator, our whole world starts to transform. So what happened to me when after a, a period of time in my own personal mindfulness meditation practice, I noticed that when I finally included kindness meditation and compassion meditation, especially my own practice, then everything that I felt like I've just sort of been noticing or not looking at or kind of even judging through my, my basic mindfulness practice, that's when everything just sort of started to soften. And I was able to meet the deep habits of my mind and the deep habits of my own like emotional responses or reactions 
with the skillfulness and helpfulness of kindness and compassion, which actually lets us start working with the messiness of our human lives in a so much wiser and skillful way. So that's what was really the main reason for writing the book was because I knew that modern day meditators, we needed these teachings in an accessible and timely way. And there wasn't a book out there. The last book on these practices was written by a great mentor of mine, I think 30 years ago, actually, uh, the book Loving Kindness by Sharon Salzberg, an incredible senior meditation teacher in the insight uh, meditation tradition here in the U.S., but it had been 30 years. And, you know, I just knew that we really needed to focus on kindness and compassion at this point in time. Yeah, especially at this point in time, like you said, especially with what's, you know, happening in the world. So let me ask you this, kindness and compassion. I love the way you explain that and why it's so essential to living our day to day with lovingness, kindness, compassion. But what about the person? Because I've seen people get a high, get high off of like being offended or being pissed off about what's happening in the world. And there's some people out there that look at the world and they watch the news or they watch social media and they're like, how can I be loving and compassionate if, you know, the world's coming to an end or we're locked down for COVID or whatever kind of stinking thinking thought they have? Where do they start when they're so far on the opposite side of love and compassion? They think that the world is a hateful place. I know, get the book, first of all, <laughs> get your book. But what are some things they can start doing like today if that's where they are at in their journey? Yeah, the first thing I would I would say to do is immediately bring your attention to your body. Notice what that feeling is when you are in the act of maybe judging or realizing that I view the world maybe from this place of negativity bias, or I don't have a lot of hope for um, the goodness of humanity in today's world. Often when we are in judgment or when we're in anger, or hatred, the state of our bodies, and of course the mind-body connection, but the state of our bodies in particular, there's most likely a feeling of constriction and anxiety in the heart. Most likely your muscles are really tensed up. Uh, you might even be in the full expression of fight or flight in the autonomic nervous system response, which is like your cortisol is pumping, you feel on defense, you feel like you're you know, almost trying to go into battle. And all of this is happening just by maybe writing in some comments on a social media post, or again, like really just having that visceral reaction and response in your body of that anger, that frustration, um, that negativity bias, or or that judgment in, in your body. So my first suggestion is be honest with the actual palpable felt sense experience of this is what judgment feels like in my body. This is what anger feels like in my body. And what often happens, I, I notice when people really do actually bring it back home because when we're judging, when we're angry, when we are in the frequency of hate, that's all pointed outwards. That is a external experience where actually uh, our awareness is completely anchored outwards. And so by bringing our awareness back and saying, how does my body feel right now? That actually starts to point the awareness back inwards. And we can realize this is not making me feel good. <laughs> and as human beings, 
we are pleasure seeking creatures. Nobody does not want to feel good. And it's, it's kind of a, a beautiful thing in a sense, because even from a selfish perspective, we can actually start to work with jealousy, judgment and hatred and anger, even from the level of selfishness and say, I don't want to be feeling this way right now. I feel terrible probably, or just really, really like revved up and, and constricted and pent up. Okay, what could actually allow me to feel better? What could make my body feel less tense and feel freer? And then that introduces like the next option, which is, well, maybe instead of moving into judgment or hatred, I can move into compassion or kindness or simply even choosing to disengage and not perpetuate that harm out in the world. I love that. So bring your attention to your body. And typically when you're in this sort of like hateful, angry state, you're going to probably have a faster heartbeat. As you mentioned, you might activate that. You probably are going to activate that sympathetic tone. Your breathing is going to be more shallow than it is deep. So pay attention to those cues. And it's going to, you're going to ask the question, is that something that you, you want to be in that sort of environment where you're kind of in this fight or flight? Or do you want to bring your body and your mind back to this homeostasis? It kind of reminds me of Dr. Wayne Dyer, who I uh, I love I love his work. I study him every single day, even though he's passed. But he talked about squeezing an orange, and he used to give lectures saying, "What happens when you squeeze an orange?" He says, "What comes out of an orange is orange juice," and he's like, "That's because that's what's inside of the orange." So, what comes out of you when life squeezes you, when life applies pressure, when you have challenges, is what comes out. So by developing this love, compassion, meditation, mindfulness, what will come out will be what's inside. And it's exactly what you're teaching. Yes. Oh, that is brilliant, Ben. Um, I, I I love that story and that teaching uh, from Dr. Wayne Dyer so much. And it is perfect because yeah, what we develop and cultivate on the inside is most definitely what is transmitted and exuded on the outside through our responses or our reactions. And it's it's a powerful way to also think about our meditation practice, whether we're developing more mindfulness, present moment attention, or more capacity to respond in a kinder and compassionate way. What we train for in the realm of our meditation practice is also for others. It's not just for ourselves. So if we have the intention to be more present in our lives or to be kinder and more patient, more loving, more compassionate in our lives, then that is also what we are sharing. You know, it's the gifts of our practice that we are sharing with those we encounter in the world. It's a huge motivator for many of us as meditators in, in today's world. So well said. Uh, you said something really, you made a, dis- a huge important distinction a minute ago. You said we could choose to react to something or we could choose to respond. And that distinction is so important to understand. I actually have a coin here on my desk from Bob Proctor. On one side of the coin says react and you lose control. And then you flip it over and it says respond and you're in control. And there's a big difference. And essentially, it's stories that we are creating, right? If somebody cuts you off in traffic, 
you could create this story and react and say, what a jerk, what an a-hole. I, I can't believe that guy cut me off and you honk at him and you're angry and now it puts you in a sympathetic state. Yeah, that's one option. That's a story. Or you could say, oh my gosh, that person must, might, might be rushing to the hospital. It might be going to an emergency. I hope he gets he or she gets there okay. You could respond. But it's really a story that we create. So why not create a better story is what you're saying. Oh, yes. Yes, 100%. And yeah, mindfulness in particular is one of the direct ways. It's one of the direct tools we have as human beings to introduce enough pause between the reaction and the actual action or hopefully the response. So the moment we actually can feel the reaction starting to set in, that's where our mindfulness can kick in and say, oh, ooh, here comes that reaction. I feel that heat of anger swelling within me. I'm about to press send on this really snarky text or email. Oof, wait a minute. Let me, you know, let me pause and actually decide and choose how do I want to respond instead. And often when we actually allow for that pause to happen through a moment of mindfulness, we give ourselves the great opportunity to respond in a much more skillful and beneficial and kinder way. Yeah. So let me ask you this personal question, and uh, you don't have to answer if you don't want, but when was the last time you got triggered and maybe that moment of time between like reacting and responding, you, you kind of leaned a little bit more into the reaction side. Do you remember the last time you were triggered? I know it happens to all of us. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's such a good question because being a meditator, one of my favorite things about being like a meditator, Ben, is that we can't help but be aware. <laughs> we, can't help, we can't help but be aware of our, yes, our reactivity, or are responding, we can help help but be aware of, gee, when I eat this particular food, this food makes me feel good. Or gee, this food does not make me feel as good. And by now my you know digestion feels completely off. So the more that we engage with meditation, the greater our self-awareness becomes. And so, you know, I think the last time I was aware that I was reactive or triggered, I mean, is even like recently, you know, possibly this week, maybe around you know, something that I don't know, like my partner said, or just some sort of relationship dynamic. But the thing is, the distinction is, is that I notice that because I'm aware of their trigger happening, I feel the felt sense, like the bodily sensations of the trigger happening. I feel the heart rate increase. I feel like that heat of like righteousness or anger, maybe my cheeks get a little flushed. And then I notice within me, oh, I want to, you know, defend myself, I want to protect myself, or I want to say something to make myself feel right or feel better. So all of that awareness is kicking in. And then before any action is put in place, you know, I'm able to actually almost get ahead of it and say, okay, no, you know, let me just reestablish myself back into my equanimity, back into my skillful responding. So I'm thankful to say definitely through my meditation practice that even though of course I get you know triggered just like everybody else the trigger never actually becomes a real trigger it never actually triggers some sort of reaction into reality if that makes sense yeah you don't let it linger you you know you're aware of it and that's the key you said in the beginning awareness is the key right so when you're aware you don't let a um, you know a, a momentary stimulus lead to a whole day of your day's ruined or your week is ruined. It's like, okay, that's the moment. That's what happened. 
Now what's next, right? So that's the awareness part. I got triggered this week from my cat. I have two cats and a dog and they're my fiance's cats. So we live together. So now they're my cats too. But one of the cats has been peeing in our bathtub and outside of my office. here. And I woke up the other day, the morning, and I saw there was a whole bunch of urine in the the litter is like right next to it. I'm like, why didn't he just go to the litter? So I'm like, I walk into the room. I'm like, your cat peed in, uh, by my office. Like, go clean it. Like, why is he doing this? Like, we need to figure something out. And I'm like, well, he's old. I don't know why that triggered me. It's like, he's getting old and it happens. And I kind of, I, w- I became aware that I was getting angry and I stopped myself. So that's what you're saying. It's like becoming aware and then don't let it linger for the whole day and ruin your whole day. Oh, exactly. Yes. And I mean, the moment that you became aware, oh, the cat is elderly. Oh, this is why this is happening. You know, the de-escalation of our triggers all happens through that moment of awareness. And then choosing to do exactly what you did, Ben, is bring in, you know, conscious reasoning, and then also perhaps bring in skillful responding, skillful, kind communication, or skillful, compassionate behavior or action. If you watch any of my videos on social media, you always see me with glasses on. And I always get the question, hey, why are you wearing those glasses? These are called blue light blocking glasses. And I wear them to protect my brain and my focus. You see, we are bombarded with stimulation, especially with junk light from your computer screen, your phone, fluorescent lights, and the brain has to filter that out. These glasses, what they do is they filter out those lights for you so your brain does not have to do the work. I equate this to having a web browser open with 100 tabs. If you had 100 tabs open on your computer, that computer is going to run slow. But if you were able to eliminate 99 of those 100 tabs, and now you just have one tab open, that computer will function better. This is the same thing with your brain. So there's different types of blue light blocking glasses. There are computer glasses that you would wear during the day when working with screens and under artificial light. There are light sensitivity glasses that you would also wear during the day with screens and artificial light. And then you have the blue light blocking glasses, which I wear at night, two to three hours before I go to bed, which promotes hormone health, helps your body produce melatonin, and aids in better sleep. My go-to is from Bon Charge. They have the science to back it up. They look super cool. The glasses come in non-prescription, prescription and reading options, glasses for every need. Bond Charge also has other amazing products such as low blue light bulbs, red light therapy devices, EMF slash 5G protection, and 100% blackout sleep mask that I take with me when I travel all the time. The greatest thing about them, all backed up by science. They gave Keto Camp Podcast listeners a 15% off coupon code. All you need to do is head over to bondcharge.com slash ketocamp and use the coupon code ketocamp at checkout, no space in between, to get 15% off your entire order. We'll drop that link down below along with the coupon code. Go check them out and let's get back to this episode. The next topic is something you talk about in your book, which is the imposter syndrome. That's something that for me personally even to this day, I, I, it's still a, a challenge, which is more of like an opportunity for me to grow. But I remember last year, I did a lot of speaking gigs. I went to a lot of conferences. I traveled a lot, which is amazing. I loved it. It's my highest value is to speak on stage. But I remember I was speaking at U, in Utah at this uh, conference called Keto Salt Lake. 
And every single speaker there was either like a medical doctor or, or a doctor or like somebody who has a degree that I don't have. I'm a, I'm a functional health coach and I have that degree and I got, you know, I'm proud of what I've done, but I'm, I'm not a doctor. So I remember it was, uh, I was speaking on the second day and all the other doctors were there watching all the other speakers and I, they were getting, to, getting ready to announce me on stage and I'm backstage and I'm like, imposter syndrome, like, what am I doing here? Do I know what I'm talking about? Like, these people are doctors, like do you even belong here? And I had all these doubts. And I started to become my heart rate increased, my my palms got sweaty, and I started to get really nervous. And then I kind of centered myself. And I said, like, you've helped so many people, you just stay in your lane, teach what you know about and, and it's not even about you. It's about the people that you could serve in this room today. And it got me out of that. But I still have that imposter syndrome, especially when I'm around people that I put on pedestals temporarily. So what kind of coaching can you give me? And for those who struggle with that, entrepreneurs tend to, what's some, some, what's some tips that you could give for us today? Yes. I mean, thank you for sharing your own personal story of imposter syndrome. And to your point, Ben, it is so normal and very common in today's world. Everybody at times feels like, you know, how did I get here? Am I credentialed enough to be here? Do I have enough expertise or background uh, to be here? And the direct practices that we can rely on in that moment when we start to notice imposter syndrome arising is the practice of self-compassion. Why? Compassion in itself is a direct antidote to judgment. What happens when we're in the downward spiral of imposter syndrome is that we are in a huge experience of self-judgment. The judgment mind is most likely really turned on because we're comparing ourselves. We're judging and opinionating how we measure up to the other people that we're having imposter syndrome against, whether they're real people or, or you know, not real people. Even sometimes imposter syndrome just comes as this overall feeling of inadequacy or lack of self-worth, self-confidence, and self-doubt. But this all also stems from self-judgment and a lack of like self-belief or, or self-confidence. Compassion, again, is the antidote to judgment. It is how we start to get into those pathways of the judgment mind and introduce something else. Compassion actually says, even though I am feeling this way, it's okay to feel this way, but I can also allow myself to perhaps feel another way when I'm ready, or I can offer myself some sort of inner support and inner resourcing in that moment that through the validation of our feelings of I'm totally, you know, full of I'm riddled with self-doubt right now, or I'm really in the throes of judgment mind. I'm really in the throes of feeling inadequate or like I don't belong here. The moment we meet ourselves with compassion, even just through bare acknowledgement and recognition, I feel like this right now is the same moment we start to be able to move ourselves or walk ourselves down a path in a different direction. So often what happens is if compassion or even kindness, but if compassion isn't brought into the picture, we'll just keep going down that path of, of self-judgment. We won't get off of it. And it can be really hard to sort of reel ourselves back into any sort of growthful or positive mindset. But the heart practices, specifically self-compassion says, I got you. It's okay to feel this way. 
and let me choose a different way. So I also call this the compassion crossroads. When we are in the throes of suffering, when we are in the throes of self-judgment, we are at this crossroads. We can keep going down the one path of the judgment mind or reactivity, or we can go the other way, the compassionate way, which leads to perhaps more wisdom or a different way of meeting those feelings in the moment. That's in, I like that. I like that compassion crossroads. It's kind of what I went through, right? I was going down one direction with so much self-judgment and self-doubt, and then I became aware, going back to that word, and then I went the other way where I gave myself compassion and I, and I, I did a great job. I feel like I did a great job after that. So yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. I want to transition to one of my favorite topics. I call it vitamin G because it's gratitude. <laughs> and Ooh, uh, I was hoping. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm just such yeah. a huge advocate of a grateful state and what it's done for me and what it's done for my community. So that's why I call it vitamin G. I wear t-shirts that say uh, vitamin G. And I know Dr. Joe Dispenza has done these scans on individuals going through his courses and, and his uh, seminars. And he's seen when they take their dose of vitamin G, so when they practice gratitude, 1,200 chemical reactions take place instantaneously, like GABA, oxytocin, serotonin, to put the body in this anti-inflammatory state. And it's completely free. We could do it any single time. So I want to hear your thoughts on how you practice and teach gratitude and some of the research you've seen on what it does for the body. Yes, I am so glad that you are bringing us to this great conversation of gratitude because and it's a perfect segue as just like compassion is an antidote to the judgment mind or to feelings of inadequacy or, or over-opinionation or comparison about a certain circumstance that we're finding ourselves in. Gratitude is a direct antidote to um, feelings of lack or, or feelings of just really not being maybe contented or aware of where we are actually supported in our lives. Where is there meaning and purpose in our lives? Gratitude is also the direct, it's the quickest way back to happiness and, and even joy. So it's our direct practice, it's our direct pathway and doorway back into happiness and joy. So whenever I am hearing perhaps some of my students uh, in more of a negative self-talk experience or they're very focused on what is not going well in their lives or they're simply feeling down, um, they could even be experiencing loss or grieving, then I suggest gratitude. You know why? Because gratitude actually shifts us often from a negative mindset or that negativity bias that we are all primed with as human beings. And it moves us back into growth mindset. It moves us back into um, a state of greater contentedness and ease and appreciation and happiness. The distinction is here though, is that happiness actually has many different flavors and facets to it. So we often, especially in Western culture, we think that maybe happiness always has to be in the expression of like exuberance or joy or like rah-rah, everything is going amazing in my life and I'm just like over bubbling with goodness or happiness or joy. Happiness though also has different expressions. Happiness can be the feeling or the experience of just deep contentedness, deep fundamental okayness, 
happiness can also be the moment of feeling very connected with the present moment, like really being encapsulated by a scene of nature or the way the sunlight is hitting a leaf outside of the window. That feeling of satisfaction and contentedness is also an expression of happiness or genuine happiness. So gratitude, even simple gratitude, my go-to gratitude um, practices has been, I often encourage my students or, or you know anyone in my audience to practice 33 gratitudes. Why? Because when you start to challenge yourself to think of 33 reasons that you're grateful for, then you get to your first few gratitudes, you get to your first five, you get to your first 10. And let's say you were in a pretty like, you know, negative mindset at, at the beginning of the gratitude practice, you can actually feel and track over the course of stretching into those 33 gratitudes, because at the end, you're like, what else can I be grateful for? Like, what else do I have to be grateful for? And sometimes you realize I can keep going. I have a wellspring of gratitude within me, but sometimes it can also be really challenging. But within the challenge, when you're at 15, you're at 20, you're at 25 gratitudes, by the time you reach 33, you are in a different like mindset. You are in a different frequency and vibration. You are rooted back in appreciation, and you are most likely rooted back in a state of contentedness. You realize, I actually have so much resource and support in my life, and I have a lot to be deeply grateful for. I love the 33 gratitude list. Uh, I encourage everybody to do that action step from this conversation, like write down 33 things that you're grateful for. And don't treat it like a checklist, right? Like live in the gratitude, right? Like what does it feel like? What does it look like? What does it sound like? Whatever you're grateful for. Don't just say, I'm grateful for this and go to the next one. But even if you do that, it's hard to just do that with 33 times because eventually you're going to have to like really seek out what you're grateful for. And there's always something to be grateful for. There's so many things you mentioned, like belief and any, I mean, I could look at 20 different things in my office here that I'm grateful for. The camera, I have a high quality camera. I get to record amazing content. The mic, I have a great supplement for my gut health here. I have, you know, this, this supplement with magnesium to help me sleep. I mean, you just find going a gratitude rampage. So I love that, Amanda, the 33 things. I think that's brilliant. Oh, thank you, Ben. You just named like six things just right in your, your present moment experience, like easily that you're grateful for. So, I mean, you're a great example of how we can really reach like 33 or push ourselves to um, be grateful for so many things more easily than we might think. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I want to share with you three or four of some of my favorite quotes and just hear your thoughts and what the quotes mean to you. Are you up for that? Of course. Yes. Okay. So the first one is from Robert Heinlein. He said, in the absence of clearly defined goals, we become strangely loyal to performing daily trivia until ultimately we become enslaved by it. Mm. Mm. I deeply appreciate that wisdom and that quote because, yes, when we often get lost in the minutia of maybe daily tasks or from the meditation perspective, the surface layer of thinking the to-do list, you know, am I hungry? Am I not hungry? What do I have to do today? What are the chores I have to accomplish? Am I in a state of comfort or am I in a state of unpleasantness? Then we're just sort of skimming the surface 
layer of our lives. And like the beginning of that beautiful, wise quote said, we almost lose sight of the greater vision or the greater trajectory or the greatest, the greater purpose. I deeply resonate with that. The more that we are encompassed or consumed by the surface layer of thinking, especially of the mind, it's almost like we're being tricked by the mind a little bit to like say in the minutia of our daily lives, Whereas the opportunity is to maybe take a deep mindful step back and say, what do I want? Where am I going? How can I be of service? In what way can I create change or the sort of impact that I want to see in the world? That's what actually moves the the needle in a really meaningful way. What a great quote. I love it. Yeah, great perspective. I love that. Okay, next one. Price Pritchard said, if you're going to doubt something, doubt your doubt. Ooh, <laughs> uh, I, I think that, yeah, doubt, it's an epidemic. It can be a, an epidemic, you know, uh, overall in these times. When we are riddled with doubt, we lose a sense of self-connection. We lose sense of self-trust and self-confidence. And to work with doubt, I think, is also one of the great tasks of the time, especially for you know modern day people. In order to work with doubt, this is really also where the heart practices come in. One of the best ways to work with doubt is by meeting it with the pure helpfulness of kindness and compassion, because it makes doubt a little less scary, a little less like a huge monster that we're going to get overtaken by. Um, It lets us actually see our doubt with loving eyes and say, you can still be here, but I'm going to choose a different way. I'm going to actually work on self-validation, self-honoring, self-love, self-respect. And I'm going to maybe give myself the chance to take that next step that doubt is keeping me from wanting to to take or to experience. Mm, Great perspective. Okay, I got one more. Tony Robbins, the, you know, the, the Tony Robbins is probably the most popular person in the self-development space. I love his work. But he said, there, there's not such a thing as a victim, only a volunteer. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me that we always have, you know, choice in our response, in our reaction. And I think we have learned this from, you know, so many great historical leaders um, in the in the social justice space and even in the humanitarian space that even when we are in the most difficult of life circumstances, we still have the option of choice and how it is we respond. So I agree with, with Tony Robbins that there's, there's always the option of voluntary response instead of maybe being in the victim of reaction or the victim of our circumstances. 100%. I agree with that as well. So last question is about vitamin G. I want to ask you what you are grateful for today, Amanda. Ben, thank you for asking. I am grateful for this delicious time in this conversation together right now. I'm grateful for the ability for us to talk about and share You know what is meaningful for us in our own lives and our professional lives. And I'm really grateful for even you know, knowing that this 
these practices and perspectives will reach the ears and hearts and minds of so many listeners. And I'm grateful for perhaps them finding some deep value and benefit to it. So I'm grateful for this time here together today. I love it. I love that gratitude. And your book is called Kindness Now. Where is the best place for the audience to go get it? Yes. So you can find Kindness Now on kindnessnowbook.com or at any major book retailer in the world from Amazon to Barnes & Noble to the Book Depository for those ordering outside of the U.S. And also on my website, which is amandagilbertmeditation.com and across all of my social media channels too, which is whether it's Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at amandagilbertmeditation. And, and you also do retreats and workshops. Do you do them just in Miami now or are you doing them in other places as well? Thanks for asking, Ben. Yes, I do uh, host retreats in Miami, actually. with uh, I collaborate here with Modern Ohm, a, a amazing Miami-based mindfulness community and a community for spiritual wellness. Uh, and my main work right now is actually a teacher training. So I hosts a modern meditation teacher training, which is a 200-hour, five-month-long training and course of study on how to be an impactful and integral meditation teacher in today's world. So my work actually, especially lately, Ben, has been, yes, offering retreats and online courses on meditation and the heart practices like we talked about today. But um, really recently, these last couple of years, I've been focused on the cultivation of incredible meditation teachers. Why? Because we need it. The world deeply needs the support of these practices. And to be a meditation teacher in today's world also means you need to be trained on how to really hold, you know, hold the sorrows of the world and the joys of the world in a skillful and integral way. So you can find that work on my website, amandagilbertmeditation.com or at the trainings website, which is modernmeditation.training. We're going to put all that down below in the notes. So if you're watching on YouTube, it's below. If you're listening on the podcast, go check it out. Go follow Amanda on her social media. Amanda, thank you for the amazing conversation, which is so important, especially in this day and age. Uh, I love that you're down here in Miami like me. We'll do dinner again very, very soon. And just keep up the great work. Just keep shining your bright light and helping as many people as possible. I know you helped a lot of people today, including myself. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Amanda. Ben, it has been a total joy being here in conversation with you. I hope you enjoyed that wonderful conversation with Amanda. If you want to learn more about her meditation, training courses, workshops, books, whatever it is you're looking to do with Amanda, everything can be found on her website, which is amandagilbertmeditation.com. I highly recommend you go check out more of her work. Check out her courses, her online courses, her in-person workshops. You might want to start with her book, whatever you feel called to do, but go to amandagilbertmeditation.com. I'm going to drop a link for that down below in the podcast notes. If this was valuable to you, please share the episode with a friend. You might want to consider watching the YouTube video version of today's podcast and any of our podcasts. The video format could be found on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash ketocamp. 
And please consider leaving the Keto Camp Podcast a rating and review if you haven't done so already. Go get registered for the free seven-day keto challenge starting April 10th with me, Dr. Jason Fung, Dr. Ken Berry, Dr. Boz, and other special guests. Head over to ketocampchallenge.com or click the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for listening to the whole show and spending part of your day with Amanda and myself. I am so grateful. I've got vitamin G for you. I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.